Welcome to the Reunion Church Podcast. We're a community following Jesus, seeking the good of our city. We hope today's teaching is both challenging and encouraging. If we could be a resource to you on your spiritual journey, don't hesitate to reach out via our website at reunionnyc.com. Today's teaching text is Revelation 2, 8 through 11. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you were rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you. You will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, let's pray. Father, I love you, and I'm so grateful to... Um, gathered together today to set our minds on you, to set our hearts on you. And I, I pray that um, what, what we do now as we think about your word and sit under your word is actually a work of formation in our hearts, that, that our minds would be engaged, sure, but that our hearts would actually be um, formed more into your image and your likeness so that we might follow you better, but so that we may leave here and love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And so, God, where um, we need hope today, I pray that you would meet us in that. Um, where we need challenge, I pray that you would push on us. God, would you convict us, um, like you say in your scriptures, to, to repent, to turn back to you where we can. And may we take that critique wholeheartedly and say, I'm looking back to you, Jesus, my Savior and my Lord. And so I just pray this morning, Lord, what we know not, would you teach us? What we are not, would you make us? And what we have not, would you give us? In the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so we're looking at um, a very intense scripture today, right? Um, we're looking at the seven letters to the churches in Revelation, Revelation chapters 2 and 3. And basically, these letters were written to churches in modern-day Turkey, but in that time, it was Asia Minor. And what we're doing is actually, we're, we're looking at these letters as a way of accepting critique and correction from Jesus to the church in this Lenten season. And so here's a picture, if you haven't been with us, of the uh, map of what's going on here. Um, the seven churches of Revelation, we're going out of order a little bit, but here would be the order. Um, it, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Theatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And uh, the writer of Revelation is the beloved apostle John. He's now in his um, late 70s, early 80s. Um, what we've learned over the last couple of weeks is that he's been following Jesus since middle school. And so the arc of his life has been faithfulness to the person of Jesus. And now he's on this island right in the bo- center in the bottom there. He's on the island of Patmos out in the Aegean Sea. And he's been exiled to this island. It's 40 miles off of uh, modern-day Turkey. And uh, John has been exiled here because he will not give allegiance to the Roman emperor of the time, Domitian. Rather, what he's standing up and saying is, there's one Lord, there's one God, his name is Jesus. And so John has been exiled to this island. So on Patmos, um, Jesus gives John a vision to these seven churches. And you notice in that order is how the mail carrier would get there. And so that's why Ephesus comes first, and then Smyrna 
um, which we'll talk about today. But he's writing this, uh, these letters to these churches for wisdom, for, um, to commend them, and then to critique them so that they might faithfully follow Jesus. So we begin in verse 8 here. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, so you have the audience, and then you're getting the author here. These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. Audience, Smyrna, uh, author, who is it? It's him who is first and the last, right? What is Jesus, uh, what is Jesus called in the Bible? Alpha, Omega, in, in the Greek here, it's Arche and Telos. Arche meaning the archetype of humanity. Telos means um, the end to which we live for, first and last. And then who's, who's the one that died and came to life again? The whole reason we're here today, right, is resurrection, Jesus, right? And so it's sort of interesting that Jesus says, this is who I am, this is the writer of this, because let's talk about Smyrna, and I'll show you why this is interesting. Smyrna was a prominent city in the ancient world, a lot like Ephesus in that it's a prominent port city. It was big, not as big as Ephesus, but there was a little competition going on in Smyrna um, and, per- and Pergamum, these two cities. They were the most prominent um, in Asia Minor at the time. And if you go to the British Museum, actually, there's some coinage that you'll find um, from Smyrna. And um, on the coins, it says, Smyrna, the first city of Asia, or the first, uh, first of Asia in beauty and size. And so basically what you're getting in the coinage is like a little, little like jab at Ephesus. Like we know we're not as big as you in terms of population, but we're more beautiful. Has anybody been to Izmir? It's, it's, it's now uh, called Izmir in modern day Turkey. You guys, go look at these Airbnbs. I keep, I keep doing this, like, amazing coastal cities. I'm just like, I want to go to this place. This looks absolutely amazing. And so in Smyrna, they're like, our city is beautiful, 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 beautiful. And uh, the, the funny thing about that is they kept saying we're the first. And what does Jesus say? Jesus says, this is the words of him who's the first. And so Jesus is saying, yeah, yeah, me too. You're first. I'm first too. Um, if, if you go to the city of Izmir, you can actually see this um, in, in pictures. Um, you can still, just like Ephesus, see its, its Greco-Roman architecture. Um, you can find there its allegiance to Rome. And the Greek gods were very prevalent there. And based on its location, I did a deep, deep dive on this. I was looking at tectonic plates this week. Very, very fascinating. The, and I hope I say this right, the Anatolian fault line actually comes along the, the Aegean Sea and modern-day Turkey, right along um, this, this plates. And so um, Smyrna is actually known for earthquakes. And um, I Googled this. It actually, in the last two years, they've had multiple earthquakes. And the reason this is important is that back then, there was um, not you know, modern, durable architecture like there is today. And so multiple times throughout history, uh, Smyrna was you know, um, destroyed. It was fallen to the ground, and then it was rebuilt. Um, in 590 BC, the city was destroyed. It was left abandoned for uh, three centuries, and then it was rebuilt under Alexander the Great. And um, one writer by the name of, I'm, I'm, I'm going to nail these today, Alias Aristides compared the destruction of Smyrna to the bird, the phoenix, you know, the bird that dies and then magically rises to life. And there was a motto in Smyrna, and this was it. We once were dead, but now are alive. And so this was like a whole, like, Smyrnan thing, all right? You see what Jesus is doing, right? He's saying, these are the words of him who is the first and the last, right? Arche, telos, who died and came to life, resurrection. But Jesus is brilliant, He's, he's, he's speaking to his audience. He's saying, I know your city. 
I know what's happened historically in your city. I know everything that you're facing because not only am I those things, but I've seen these things throughout history in your city. Coinage and earthquakes. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, I know you. I'm fully aware of your city. I'm fully aware of its history. I know the situation you find yourself in. I know you intimately. And here's the thing about Jesus, and I I love looking at these letters. In Ephesus, he says, I walk with you. Essentially, what he's saying is, I don't stand at a distance when it comes to my church. Rather, I'm with my church. I didn't stand up in heaven next to the Father, next to his throne, but I came down, and I know what you're going through. And I just think this is a really perfect start to today's teaching, which is this. Jesus knows. Jesus knows our lives. Jesus knows our context. Jesus knows our city. Jesus knows what you walked in with today. He knows your desires and your struggles and your fears and your dreams. Jesus knows your desire to meet someone. He knows your struggle to feel seen. He knows your doubts and your intellectual hangups. He knows your fear of failure. And then he knows that in a a personal way, but then zoom out because these are letters written to groups and bodies of people, right? Jesus knows our context here in the city. He knows the tensions of what it means to follow him in our great, modern, consumeristic, progressive, hypermobile city, right? Expensive, too. God knows. And he knows the tensions that we live in, how we're, how we're taking the scriptures that we're, we're learning and we're trying to apply them during the week and how we're trying to live that out at work and how we're trying to stay true to our values and maintain a life in the city. He knows how we're tired and overworked and he knows how we're busy and burdened and how it's like, that sounds great, Russell, to join community group. I don't got time for that. Jesus knows the tension that we live in. And I wonder if, if when we look at these letters, you know, we could actually, um, we could let them be um, for that audience in that particular time and place, but that we could also be a church in 2024 in New York City that's saying, God speaks still. Like, God's word is living and active, and I believe that he can speak. And I regularly, I regularly think, and I pray this way, I, th- I pray, like, God, I'm frustrated. Like, why, why, why when I pray does it feel like you're silent? Like, I'm, I'm, I'm saying I want to be obedient to you. I say I need wisdom. I need direction. And I, I sort of live with this inner frustration of like, God, do you still speak? I, I need you. And I, I read this this week and I thought, Jesus does still speak. Are we listening? Are we tuned into what God is saying through his word? And there's so much wisdom here. And so what is Jesus saying to the church in Smyrna? And like, what can we glean from their circumstances? Here's verse 9. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. Um, when the Bible talks about riches, it's not always um, you know, financial gain. Um, he says, I, I know about the slander of those who are saying they're Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So pretty intense, but I think this is part of why um, we're trying to read Revelation responsibly. You know, that, that Revelation is written in such a way to in, invoke us um, and to really get at us. And Jesus says to the church first, I I see that you're afflicted and that you're impoverished. The Greek word for affliction here is this really cool word. It's flipsis. Um, It means um, to have a weight or a pressure on you, a crushing pressure. Um, The uh, first century reader would would hear actually, uh, basically when they would read that, they would hear um, a way of torture. Um, In this time, they would lay, um, they were going to kill someone, they would lay a boulder on them and watch them suffocate and suffer to death. And so you're getting this idea of overwhelming 
pressure. Um, I don't know if anybody, if you've ever had a panic attack before, you sort of feel like you can't breathe, like something is crushing your chest or like a, like a, maybe I've heard this phrase, like an elephant is sitting on your chest, like you're trying to breathe, right? That would be philipsis, intense pressure. And I think that this word, um, it's not used a ton in the Bible. I mean, it can mean like um, a sort of inward pressure, like uh, a wave of depression hits you. Um, you know, an unresolved conflict is bringing you anxiety and you begin to feel it bodily, right? That kind of crushing pressure. And Jesus speaks to this um, about that inward experience of, of this type of pressure. That's not necessarily what he's talking about here, though. And the more common way this is used in the Bible and the way that Jesus is, is actually meaning this affliction here is coming from oppression or persecution, and you notice that because the word poverty is mentioned here too. He's saying, I know your affliction of what it, what it looks like to exist as a follower of Jesus in this context. And then he mentions this idea of poverty. Christians in this time, um, because of their faith and because of their resistance to Rome and the Greek gods, were actually prone to having their property just taken from them. Um, in this time, Christians were left out of social and economic life um, because they wouldn't pay homage to Caesar to get into the market. And so we talked about this a couple weeks ago, but essentially in Ephesus, you would come into the market and to get into the agora, the, the place where you would buy and sell in exchange, where you would make money and, and receive or receive items, you would come and, and you would make a sacrifice. You would burn incense and say, Caesar is Lord. And Christians in these cities were saying, I won't do that. And so they were left out of social and economic life. Uh, one commentator said it this way. In that days, workers typically belonged to a trade guild, but membership into such association required participation in various pagan religious ceremonies that would be forbidden to Christians. The Jesus followers faced a hard choice. They could either compromise one faith in order to retain membership and continue working or refuse to participate and risk unemployment and poverty. And so the Christians in Smyrna resisted, and therefore they were left out and left impoverished, crushing oppression. And then the verse continues, I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. And essentially what he's saying is this, is it's not just the state, it's not just the Greco-Roman world coming after you, but actually it's Satan himself. And the language is, is so intense because um, this idea of crushing pressure or thlipsis, he's saying, is actually a clashing of kingdoms. It's, not, it's, it's the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan, like colliding and creating um, pressure. There's a lot more going on. And I know some people, they say, well, you know, like, I, 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 I always run into that tension, you know, when I read the Bible, that there's like this ethereal spiritual world that, um, that's out there and that we wrestle with. And it's like, to be honest, my response is always like, there is so much evil in this world. There's so much that's unexplained in this world. I, I have to believe in something more than just what I can see. And, and for the church in Smyrna, the, the really important thing actually to, to see is um, in each of these letters, there's a correction. Here's what you're doing wrong. Here's, here's the way you need to turn back. There's no correction for the church in Smyrna. There, there, there's nothing. And the reason they're facing this crushing pressure, and this is a, precisely the point, it's because they're doing everything right. They're facing pressure because they're doing everything right. And sometimes I wonder if we're facing pushback or oppression because we're actually heading in the right direction. Because people are pushing back against us and it's actually like, I, I feel like that's a temptation to calm down, but I'm actually heading in the right direction, 
right? And I, I read this, and I, I, wish, I wish Jesus would have said this. I know your pressure. I know your affliction. I know your poverty, and I'm going to make it stop, right? That's what, I, that's what I wish it said, right? My followers should not have to be subject to difficulty and danger. I, I wish it would have said, um, you know, be faithful to me, and you're not going to have any problems anymore. Like, that, that's how I wish Jesus would have responded. But look what he says in verse 10. He says, do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life, give you life as your victor's crown. Now, um, you'll suffer persecution for 10 days. I don't think Jesus is speaking um, literally here. The number 10 in this time stood for completion, um, five and five 10 fingers, right? He's saying this is a, a complete and whole trial that you are about to face. And the thing about Jesus is, um, if, you read, if you're really reading the Bible, Jesus is very realistic. What he's saying is this, is it's actually going to get harder and it's going to get worse before it gets better. And so be faithful. And, and, and quite frankly, you, you and I, um, you know, we're in the West, we're in New York City, we have a lot of freedom. Um, we, we just... Quite frankly, we can't grasp the weight of what's actually being said here. Even to the point of death, you're like, nah, I, I, that, just, like, that doesn't register, right? It, and it's, like, it's such an intense question, but is, is Jesus important to you, uh, enough to you, that even if it meant death, you, you would still follow? Like, that's not something that you and I have to think about. That's not a question that actually resonates, right? Like, come on, that just doesn't register. It's too intense, Right? But Smyrna is the persecuted church. And actually, we would be remiss. We would miss the whole passage if we didn't acknowledge that Christian persecution still exists today. And I want to make a very clear distinction because I think that this is um, um, Christians have um, leveraged the power dynamics at play in their faith um, to, to take charge and have partnered it with politics and all of these terrible things. But that doesn't negate the fact that there is real persecution in the world. And I love this one commentator that I was reading this week delineated, um, and I like the phrasing, it's major league persecution and minor league persecution. And so this major league persecution is a really good um, reminder for us. And it's a good reminder that the Bible wasn't written to, you know, Western middle-class intellectuals, but the Bible is actually relevant to all cultures in all time periods. Um, Revelation actually says over and over and over again um, that it's written to every tribe, tongue, and nation. And there are places around the world that would read this passage and they would find real empathy and they would find real encouragement and real wisdom. So I want to encourage you, um, if you go to a website, you can do this later today, you just write it down, Open Doors, um, you can just Google Open Doors, they have a ranking system of the most dangerous place, places to be a Christian in, in the world. And um, I would encourage you, it's like a five-minute video right on the front of their, their first page. Um, and it is a very powerful video. I watched it yesterday and I was like, Oh my goodness! I have I had no idea. Um, one one woman that you'll you'll find in that video. I'll just share it quickly. Is um, a, 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 her church was bombed, and her two children were inside it. She lost one of her sons, and her other son lost his eye. And you you, you look at that and you think to yourself like, I, I didn't know, you know, I, like I had no idea. And so they've compiled the most dangerous places in the world to be a Christian, number one being um, North Korea because of, the communism, because of communism, um, followed by Somalia and Libya. And Open Door estimates that one in seven Christians um, are persecuted. Um, 5,000 Christians were murdered for their faith last year, mostly in Nigeria. And I was just talking to Ananihu, who's from Nigeria, 
And um, I, I would have never thought that Nigeria would be a, a violent place for uh, Christians to exist, but it's really split south and north. The south being like, I thought Nigeria was known for like their, their megachurches, you know? But in the north, there's a lot of um, radical Islamic um, oppression that takes place. And most of the 5,000 people killed last year in Nigeria were, were in the north. Um, and most of those 5,000 were in Nigeria. Um, it can be because of a dictator, um, communism, um, like China or Cuba, um, religious nationalism. Anyway, I, I could go on and on, but these are places that, by and large, you know, we don't think of because contextually they're, you know, they're not near us. But there is major league persecution happening around the world, and you know, just for owning a Bible or for you know preaching, people are thrown in prison, killed, arrested, rejected by their family members. Um, many churches are targeted for vandalism or uh, violence. I, my friend, they just planted a church in, in Portland, um, and they, they just got everything purchased for their church plant, and somebody broke in and stole all of their equipment, $25,000 worth of equipment. And so these things are, are, are happening in our world, and they're very real. And um, a, a, a scripture I came across this week is uh, Hebrews chapter 13. Continue to remember those in prison. As if they were together, as if you were together with them in prison, and those who are mistreated, as if you yourself were suffering. And so I went into Open Doors, and I'm like scanning through their website. It was, it was really compelling in a lot of ways. And they, they I, I love the video. They said all they said at the end was just pray. I was like, well, I can do that. And so I just want to pause for a minute here, just take a second, um, to just like maybe if we just close your eyes for just a second, because I know this doesn't really feel like it has anything to do with us as a church, but just to be grateful that. Like we have a place to gather, that we're safe, that we actually have opportunities to go and to share this message very freely, and we don't sometimes, but there are people that can't. So God, um, you love your church, and your church is this whole body, and it's, it's not just us, but it's so global, and there's so many things that we, if just quite frankly, just don't understand. And these questions just seem so big, but there are people, there are amazing, faithful, like radical people that want to be faithful to you, even when it costs them everything, when it costs them their house, and when it costs them their life, costs them their ability to shop in the marketplace. It's things we can't even fathom. And so I just, one, I just pray a prayer of gratitude that we are able to do that, but I also pray for God. Um, just like this passage says, I pray for faithfulness for those people, but God, that you would meet them there, that you would embolden them, that you would help them teach us about having courage and boldness with our faith, that we wouldn't shy away, but that we have these freedoms that we take for granted. And I pray that you would um, uphold them, that you would be their God and they would be your people wherever they are, if they're in North Korea or if they're in Cuba or if they're in Nigeria, God, would you be them? Be with them right now. Love you, Jesus. Amen. So I know it's intense. I, I, I think that that idea of persecution, like major league persecution, when you, you hear stories like that of North Korea or Nigeria or Yemen, I just don't think that we can say accurately that we face persecution as Christians in the West. Um, but what is that like minor league? I don't even want to say persecution. What does like that minor league look like? Because it seems like in our time, what, what Christians face is like bad press, um, poor media portrayals, um, 
criticism. Like, n- none of you are going to work and being like, I follow Jesus, you know. And, um, I, so I, I, I was thinking about it a lot this week, and I thought, some of the critique is actually warranted. So how do you go about, you know, delineating yourself? Or if, if you're like me, you're like, okay, um, I am a Christian, but it's not like that, right? Like, that's what you always feel like you're doing. Like, I follow Jesus, but it's not like that. That's what's what it seems like we're always trying to do. And I've had a couple moments over the last couple of years that I was thinking back on this week that felt like, I, I think I want to call it like a social ostracism. Like, I was just ostracized. Um, I remember we were looking for a venue um, right before we launched as a church, and we went into a school. Um, and the janitor said, we don't rent to churches. And I love my wife. My wife stood up and said, you, 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 you can't say that. Like, you, you shouldn't say that like that. And she was like, well, you know, it's not that we don't rent to churches. And, and actually, in New York City, this was a huge deal about 15 years ago um, that actually schools have to rent to churches. And then you have to figure out the logistics uh, from there. Uh, recently, I was in the hallway, maybe three, four months ago, and um, service had just started. I was using the restroom. And I was standing um, there, and a dancer tried to come in, and I said, are you looking for your class? She said, yeah, I think it's in here. I was like, you can go in. I was like, our church is meeting in there. And she looked at me like I was the, like, Satan or whatever, the synagogue of Satan I was leading in here. And, you know, I, I think in some ways we'd say, well, you know, I'm just misunderstood in that way. But in these scenarios, I think I'm, I think I'm less inclined to think, oh, I'm oppressed or I'm afflicted or I'm offended, and I'm more inclined to think, I wonder if these people had a poor experience with another follower of Jesus, right? And so it almost feels like what, what we're trying to do a lot of times is, is to, the, the rebranding effort, right? I'm, I'm actually trying to act and exist like the person of Jesus. And sometimes there is real, and I don't want to negate this, there's actually real forms of social ostracism that are not okay, like in your workplace, like in the chat at your work, how, how people talk down to or actually bigoted against Christians. Those things are not right. Um, but it almost feels like there needs to be like a rebranding effort, which is ironic because there is currently a rebranding effort and we scoff at it, right? Um, I don't know if you guys have seen these He Gets Us um, ads. I'm sure you have. Um, and I think it's a good question whether Christians should spend $100 million on advertisements um, instead of giving to the poor or the immigrant or helping plant new churches. I mean, that's like 150 to 250 new churches. I mean, that could, that could, that could be real, something really beautiful. But I don't know if you've seen the m- most recent ad. Um, it, was, it aired during the Super Bowl. Um, and thank you, Emily, for reading that scripture about washing feet, because um, if you saw the most recent ad, you can watch it after this. Um, it's, it's people washing each other's feet. Um, and actually... It doesn't feel like a rebranding effort outwardly, but actually inside the church. It's, it's in, sort of an ad to Christians to forego hate and practice love. So if you've seen it, it's a, a cop washing the feet of a young black man. It's an older woman washing the feet of a young woman outside an abortion clinic, or what looks like to be an abortion clinic. It's an oil rig worker washing the feet of a climate activist, a, a priest washing the feet of a young man. And then the commercial ends, and what comes up on the screen is, Jesus didn't teach hate. He washed feet. And people were in an uproar. And not, not because of the price tag. I still have questions, questions about the price tag, right? But, like, that's not why they were upset. But rather, this is what uh, David French said in his... Um, uh, th- this is a great article, by the way. If you want to go read it, it's in the New York Times. Um, he said, the, the purpose of the article is, are you willing to be shamed for your associations? In other words, are you willing to risk shame and isolation for loving those on the other side of the political and religious aisle? 
Are you, like Jesus, willing to love others even if it causes people to hate you? Let me read that again. Are you, like Jesus, willing to love others even if it causes people to hate you? Are you willing to love others even if, it, if they haven't repented of what you believe to be grievous sins? I think this is the question for us, actually. Like, this would be a form of, like, social ostracism that we should be willing um, to, like, accept and grieve like Jesus did, right? Are you willing to love others if it causes them, others, people to hate you? What if, when we look at this passage, for us as a church, like, in the West, like, we're safe, like, we're, it's not major league, maybe it's minor league, but maybe, what if we look at the church in Smyrna and say, maybe we're not com- uncomfortable enough. Like, what if we're just too comfortable? What if we actually need to get a little bit more uncomfortable? And for the, the message to the church in Smyrna is sort of a challenge for us to be bolder in our following of Jesus, that we actually need to be more sacrificial, that we need to be actually more vocal about our values, even if it means a form of sort of pushing ourselves to the fringes, where people ask us, how could you forgive like that? How, how, you, 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 give, you give 10% to your church in an economy like this? You're crazy, right? You would befriend them. You would stop and pray for them on the street. What if it actually pushed us a little bit further? Not to, like, not to like warrant persecution, like bring it my way, right? But to just say, you know what? I actually want to push outwardly a little bit more. So back to Smyrna. I don't know. Um, I, I think this was in the, the Friday email. So this is a test if you read your emails. Um, the name Smyrna comes from a spice. Anybody guess it or did anybody read the email? Nobody read the email. I love it. <laughs> Bree, we're gonna we're gonna put all like the little like Easter eggs, right? In the in the emails, all right? Free signups for stuff. It's myrrh. There's a spice right in Smyrna. It's myrrh, right? In ancient time, it was probably the primary export of Smyrna was this spice myrrh. And myrrh is all over the Bible, right? It's uh, the anointing oil in the book of Leviticus. It was brought as a gift to the birth of Jesus. It was used to, um, you know, anoint and preserve the dead. Um, myrrh has a number of uses. Um, uh, it's strong aroma, so it can be used as a perfume, um, medicinal properties. But something I learned this week that if you really want to get to the point or the purpose of myrrh, you have to put it under pressure. You have to crush it. You have to grind it up or you have to burn it. So to really get to the purpose of myrrh, you have to put it under pressure. Again, Jesus is brilliant. He's tapping into the culture, Right? So it makes me wonder, what if flipsis, intense pressure, what if some pressure is actually good for the church? Like f- faith under pressure strips off the excess baggage, brings us like to the things that are most important, back to the person of Jesus, who's our only hope and our only security. And I have to wonder if what Jesus isn't saying to the church is, I know you're going through it. I know you're under pressure, but guess what? The kind of stuff that you are made of is best comes to its glory when it's experiencing pressure. Like that's when, that's when it gets good. That's when it gets hard, yes. But like that's actually when it gets good, when there's a bit of pressure. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer, I tell you. The devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death. I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. 
if following Jesus becomes costly to you, will you still do it? And I know that seems like an ethereal question, right? It's like somebody asking you, if you had $10 million, well, you know, what would you do with it? But here's what this actually does, is it gets at our motivation in following Jesus. Do we follow Jesus because it's useful to us or because Jesus is beautiful? Uh, this is how Tim Keller said it. He said, you don't go to God because he's useful. You go to God because he's beautiful, and nothing is more useful than finding God beautiful. Do you follow Jesus because it seems useful to you or because he alone is beautiful, right? And there'll be critics along the way, right? Like I said before, you, you, you would give, you would give away like that. You would, you would serve on Saturdays instead of spending time brunch with your friends. You would sacrifice your time and your money like that. Well, where do we learn these behaviors? We learn them from Jesus. This is how Jesus lived his life, right? In the midst of danger and sacrifice. So let me wrap here with this story. There's an early church father by the name of Polycarp. And uh, Polycarp um, was actually the bishop of Smyrna. Um, and it's crazy stories. But actually, his mentor, you'll, you'll, you'll notice the dating here. His mentor was the beloved apostle John. And this is just so cool. Um, you have to sort of imagine John writing this letter. We estimate the letter was written in A.D. 96, and um, Polycarp was martyred in um, 156 A.D. And so you have to sort of think, he's, he might be the primary recipient of this letter, actually, like the bishop of Smyrna. He would, like, get up and maybe read this letter to the church. Think of how encouraging this would have been to the church there. I know you're under pressure. You're, you're facing things from the state um, but it's hard. But history tells us that Polycarp was actually martyred in AD 56. And what happened in this time is that um, Polycarp was alarming Rome. Um, he had become so good at discipleship, at forming people into the image and likeness of Jesus, that the early Christian movement um, in Asia Minor was actually growing really, really fast. They outlawed Christianity. And um, essentially what Polycarp and John both were labeled was, they were labeled atheists. And so in AD 156, Rome comes to Polycarp, and there's like all these different stories out there um, uh, about this. It's, it's amazing. Um, there's one story about how Rome came in with two soldiers, and Polycarp said, I'm going to come with you, but I need to pray for one hour first. And after two hours in prayer, they're like, no, 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 like, you're coming with us now, okay? And so they take him in, and they say, here's what we, we want you to do. We want you to just stand up in front of your, you, you know, your church, your people, and you just, you just need to say, you don't need to denounce your faith. We just need you to stand up and say, Caesar is Lord. And he said, I cannot do that. And he actually responded by saying this, 86 years I have served Christ, and he never did me any harm. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? 86 years I have served Christ, and he never did me any harm. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? And so they take him into this stadium. This is the, this, how the story goes. Tens of thousands of people are in the stadium, stadium chanting for him to be burned at the stake. And uh, they go to bind him. And he says, hey, don't, don't even worry about binding me. Like, I'm, I'm not going to go anywhere. I'm just going to stand right here. I'm going to take it. And the story is, the legend is that um, they light the stakes to burn him on fire. And a gust of wind comes up and extinguishes the flame. So there's no flame to light him on fire. And so a Roman soldier comes over and stabs him, pierces him right through the side and into his heart. And he dies. 86 years I have served Christ and he never did me any harm. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? And I can't help but think in that moment when he's like, 
don't, don't even worry about binding me. I can't help but think that um, he's thinking about this letter that Jesus wrote him, right? Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as a victor's crown. He's being pressed, he's being afflicted, but he's choosing to be faithful. And so today, are you pressed? Are you feeling a little bit of social ostracism? Are you afraid to share your faith at work with your family or with your friends? Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray.